Let's pray. Lord, those are are wonderful words that we just read and before that that we sang together. And I'm praying, Lord, that as we come now to these words and as we seek to dig in to understand what they mean, Father, I'm praying that your Holy Spirit would help us to understand what they mean. I'm praying, Father, that you would help us to care about what you've said here, that we would really know that this matters and that we would respond in the way that you would have us respond. For some of us, Lord, this may mean different things. This may mean different actions we need to take or different events we need to reflect on and different understandings we need to have. You know, Lord, you know in each person's heart here, Lord, how you will have them respond. So Holy Spirit, direct Direct our hearts to Christ Jesus. Show us him, show us his truth, show us his glory. And and above all, Lord, may his power and his resurrection be the, the biggest and the best and the greatest thing to us. And I ask this, Jesus, for your sake and in your name. Amen. Please have a seat. Last week, we talked about the fact that 1 Peter 3, 18 to 22 is one of the hardest passages, if not the hardest passage in the New Testament to understand. One of the aspects of this passage that makes it hard to understand is that Peter keeps on bringing things up that seem to come out of left field. It feels like having a conversation with someone who has ADD. I'm allowed to say that because I've been told that I qualify. Uh, One moment, Peter's talking about suffering. And then the next moment, he's talking about the gospel. And and, and that makes sense. But then the next moment, he's talking about the spirits in prison from this bizarre situation back in Genesis 6. And then all of a sudden, he's talking about the eight people who were saved on the ark and how their salvation is like baptism. And, and then he's talking about how baptism saves us. And, and, and as you just read it together, like we just did, you might be thinking, like, where's all this coming from? Like, what? Like, how do I even follow this? What does this have to do with anything? And the answer is that all of this has a lot to do with everything. These are not rabbit trails. You know, it might feel like rabbit trails. These aren't rabbit trails. It's all connected. And it's all connected if we remember the context. And context is just a a big word for the things that have already been said. Peter's big idea here, the thing on Peter's mind and heart that he's really trying to help his readers with, is he's helping them deal with suffering as exiles and strangers, as people who, because they belong to Jesus, they don't belong here on earth, and they're suffering for it. He's helping them deal with that. That's the big idea here. We've got to remember that so that the, the, everything else kind of falls into place. So this is why he started talking about Christ's innocent suffering, because this was an encouragement that we would follow in, in Christ's steps. So Jesus was treated poorly, even though he never did anything wrong, and, and we're to follow in his steps. And, and then we saw this is why Peter talked about 
Jesus preaching victory to the evil forces, the, the, the dark spirits, because this is a reminder that whatever powers today are working against the people of God, Christ is greater still. And it's, it's only a matter of time until every knee bows and every tongue confesses. We're, we're on the winning team, you could say. And as we keep working through our passage today, we're going to see this big idea of suffering for doing right. It's, it's what connects it together. It's what helps us understand. And what I'm hoping as we get to the end of, of looking at verse 20 to 21, which is, this is the part we skipped over last week. I hope you're going to see that this is actually really wonderful, really encouraging passage. And that in the future, as you look back on this passage, you're not going to think, wow, that's so hard to understand. You're going to think, man, that's, that's really encouraging stuff. So we're going to pick up the first section here has to do with the days of Noah. And this picks up halfway through verse 20, the days of Noah. So why is Peter talking about the days of Noah? Well, because if you remember from last week, he's talking about Jesus who went and preached victory to these dark spirits who were in prison, some spiritual prison for their sin in the days of Noah. Right? It was their sin, these, these angels leaving their positions to cohabitate with, with human women. And, and, and that, is, that was one of the sins that in some ways was like the straw that broke the camel's back that, that brought on the flood. But while he's thinking about the time of the flood, Peter's mind seems to just go to Noah and, and the eight people, out of all the people on the world at that time, eight people who were saved in a time when the wickedness of the human world and the spiritual world was growing and growing, this lonely few that you can count on both hands, even if you've lost a couple fingers, this lonely few were faithful to the Lord. Think of them laboring away all those decades building the ark. I mean, the, the Bible itself doesn't draw attention to that, but, but it, it's, it's hard to not see that as a part of the story. Building an ark just because of what God told them. Nothing but the promises of God. I mean, does, that, does this sound familiar at all? And so, of course, to Peter's mind, it's like, yeah, of course, this sounds familiar. Peter's readers were also small in number. Peter's readers were also on the fringes of their society. They were also spending their lives on things that looked crazy to the rest of the world. Right? God promised the return of Jesus. To, to the rest of the world, Jesus coming back is as strange as a flood's going to come and destroy everything, right? And so Peter's readers, which includes us, are also living our lives in a different way from the rest of the world because of promises God's made to us. We're trying to stay pure in the midst of, of wickedness that's growing around us. And often we feel alone, we feel small, we feel on the outside. I mean, you can see here why, 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 why Peter starts talking about these lonely eight because it's, 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 it's a really close situation to, to what Christians have had to experience what, what God's people, we should say, have had to experience in every age. Here's, here's part of what he's saying to his readers here. Here's part of 
what, what we can hear. Feeling small, lonely, on the outside is in some ways the normal Christian life. This is, this is what happens when we follow God. In fact, that's part of what, what Jesus warned against. You know, when he said, blessed are you and people speak evil about you for my sake. And then as in Luke's version of, of the sermon, he says, woe to you and people speak well of you. We should be suspicious, actually, if as followers of the Lord, we are too well loved by the power structures of this world. It's always been God's faithful few. And yet it was those faithful few who were saved. And so this is our second point here with, so we're looking at the days of Noah. We've seen here the few, and now we're looking at the idea that these few were brought safely through water. Peter says it was those few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. They spent decades almost certainly looking like fools as the ark was built, but they were the ones who were saved. So it was in that ark, that ark which was very likely a symbol of foolishness. It was probably something that made people curious, at least, if not mock them and ridicule them. But it was in that ark that those eight people were brought safely through the water. If you have a different Bible translation, if you maybe have the NIV, you might see the words saved through water. And, and that, that, that's an okay way of, of looking at these words, but the, the word here for saved is a word that often in the New Testament is, talks about being rescued from a dangerous situation. And, and when you put the, these words together, I think that the idea of being brought safely through water is actually a really good way of understanding what Peter was writing here in, in the original language. Noah and his family were brought safely through the waters of judgment. The waters of judgment at the flood that destroyed every other living, breathing thing on earth. They were brought safely through the waters of God's judgment in this ark that God had told them to build. Even if they had to spend months on a, on a cramped boat, they were saved from death. And think of the fact that in that ark, they, they were saved from the pounding rain and the springing floods, and they were brought safely into new life, into a world made new. And in Peter's mind, that's not all that different from you and I. We too are saved from God's judgment, brought safely through death and into life through the death and resurrection of Jesus. And that salvation in Jesus is something that we reenact through baptism. And that's Peter's point in verse 21. See, Peter's he's not changing the subject. In verse 21, when he says, baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So here we're looking at the connection of baptism. And, 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 and under the connection of baptism, our, our first idea here is, is the connection between baptism and the flood. That's, that's, that's a connection point Peter's making here. The eight were saved in the ark, brought safely through judgment, and baptism corresponds to this. Now you might say, 
I would never have thought of baptism as corresponding to the flood, to Noah's Ark. But Peter thinks that way. This is a way of thinking called typology. You don't have to know what that word is, but it's good to know what it means. Here's what it means. God often works in repeating patterns. God often does things in a similar way again and again. And he does it that way so that we can understand this thing because of this thing. So so think of it this way. Think of the sacrifices at the temple. All those years, animals were killed, blood spilled to pay for the sins of the people. And then Jesus comes and John the Baptist says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And we say, Okay, those sacrifices were a type of Jesus. And Jesus fulfills those sacrifices. He, just like those sacrifice, just like those lambs died for the people, so Jesus dies for the people. And, and we see the connection as God does something in a similar way, but in a in a bigger and in a greater way. And we could point to all kinds of examples of, of this practice or this this idea of of typology. Think of just one more. Think of Abraham going up the mountain with his only son who's carrying wood on his back. I mean, does that, sound, does that sound familiar at all? We can see how Isaac is in many ways a type of Jesus as he shows us. But then, but then at the last moment, he stops and there's the ram in the bush who dies instead of the only son. Now that, that ram is now a type of Jesus, the substitute who dies so we can live. You see, the Bible is full of these repeating patterns and it all helps us understand Jesus better. And so Peter is seeing a connection here, a repeating pattern from what happened at the flood and what happens to us in our salvation. And particularly the way that's acted out through baptism. So just like Noah and his family were brought safely through the waters of God's judgment in the ark, so you and I are brought safely through God's judgment through Christ who shelters us and saves us through his death and resurrection. You can think of it this way. It's like Jesus is our ark. The flood of God's judgment beat down on Jesus that day that he hung on the cross. And the flood of God's judgment beat down on him. And in Christ, we're safe, we're sheltered, we're protected. He dies, we don't. Hidden safely in Christ, we're, we're, we're saved from judgment And then when Christ rises to new life with him, we also live. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. That's John 5, 24. So in Christ, you think of it this way. Every human is is on a collision course for judgment day. When God is going to hold us accountable and judge us for our sins. But in Christ, we pass over judgment day, or we could say pass safely through judgment day and land on the other side of eternal life of new creation because Jesus 
like our ark endured judgment day for us. And so we're brought safely to new life on the other side. And that is what baptism is a reenactment of. Baptism is a reenactment as a living, a living drama of the way that in Jesus we've passed through death and into life because Jesus died and rose again. Colossians 2.12 tells us that we were, quote, buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. Baptism is this living sign that we've been connected to Jesus. So his death, our death. His life, our life. Romans 6, 3-4 says, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead, by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Baptism is a living symbol of being connected to Jesus, being united to Jesus. So you think of, of just the, the, the beautiful symbolism of immersion. When someone goes down into the waters, they're acting out, Jesus died for me, I died in Jesus. I died with Jesus because Jesus died for me as my representative. And when they come back up out of the water, they're reenacting the truth that Jesus rose from the dead and because I'm connected to Jesus, so have I. They're reenacting the resurrection of Jesus and therefore their own resurrection. Baptism reenacts the safe passage through death and into life. With Christ. And so death and judgment no longer have a hold on us. The old is gone, the new has come. And so you can see that there's this importance here of, of water. Water is often a symbol of judgment in the Bible. Think of the flood, and we could also think of the, of the Exodus, right? How God's people passed safely through the Red Sea, but when the enemies came, those waters closed in to. To, to, to judge them. And so what, what Peter is showing us here is that baptism is a reenactment, not just of, 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 of our connection to Jesus, but it also it's connected to the same journey made by those eight people in the ark who just like us passed safely through the waters of judgment to new life. That's Peter's point here. Baptism corresponds to this. Again, just to make this, just to repeat it one more time. As we go down into the waters of baptism, we are reenacting the waters of God's judgment that took down Jesus for us. And as we come up, we're showing how we have passed safely through in Christ. And there's a living connection there to what those eight people went through in the ark. There's a connection to baptism. And that's why Peter can now talk about baptism and salvation. 
Verse 21 says, baptism, which corresponds to this, baptism is a type of those eight people passing safely through judgment to new life. In Christ, we pass safely through judgment into new life. Baptism corresponds to this. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. That's what verse 21 says. And you're probably hoping we don't end the sermon right here, right? Because like, what do you mean baptism saves us? Did, like, did some other religion put these words in this verse? Like, are you sure the Apostle Peter said that? Yeah, he, he did. And we might get freaked out by this, right? Because we believe and we rightly believe that we have been saved by grace through faith. Faith in Christ alone. And we are. We are saved by grace through faith. I mean, Peter's told us that so many times, right? Just think of verse 18. Christ suffered to bring us to God. We've been born again to a living hope through his mercy. Yes, it's grace through faith. But here's a question. How do we express that faith? How does the faith that saves us get expressed? In the New Testament, the way that you did that was by being baptized. Think of this question. You think, how do I know whether someone else is a Christian or not? In the New Testament, the answer was they got baptized. That's how you knew. That's how you showed. That's how you expressed that you believed in Jesus. Baptism is a sign of faith. And so Peter can say, baptism now saves you. Because baptism is a sign of the faith that saves us. It's like at a wedding. We don't often use these words anymore. Um, but, but at a wedding, in the, tr- the traditional uh, kind of maybe older-fashioned words, or you see them on lots of movies, um, old movies, is, is when the couple, when, when the one put, person puts their ring on the other person's finger, they might say, with this ring, I thee wed. Now, you might think, do they believe that this ring is magic? Like, could you just go stick it on anyone's finger and you'd instantly be married to them? It's like, is this like a special, like, I used to think these kind of thoughts as a kid. Like, do you go somewhere to buy like a special marriage ring and then you got to be really careful who it touches because then you're going to be instantly married to them? No, of course it doesn't work that way. What makes a couple married is the vows that they make to each other. A wedding ring represents those vows. It's a symbol of those vows. And so we can say, with this ring, I thee wed. Because the ring represents the vows that made you married. And it's the same thing with baptism. Baptism is a sign of our faith. And so just like at a wedding, you can say, with this ring, I thee wed. So Peter can say, baptism now saves you. And Peter's pretty quick to help us understand that he doesn't mean, he doesn't mean that you could just take anybody and dunk them in the water and they're saved. Like some Nacho Libre thing. Because verse 21 says, not as a removal of dirt from the body. That's what it says. Not as a removal of dirt from the body. So in other words, Peter wants us to know the, the thing about baptism that saves is not just going in the water and coming up again. 
I mean, people do that all the time. It's not like every time you take a bath, you're getting baptized. No, it's not the, it's not the idea of going in and out of the water. The, 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 baptism has no power to save any more than a ring on any old finger has the power to make you married. And again, this is part of why we don't baptize babies. Because it's, there's nothing about the water or, the, or just the, the physical act itself. Rather, baptism saves us in the sense that baptism is a sign of something going on inside. And that's what Peter says. Again, we're still here in verse 21. Not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience. An appeal to God for a good conscience. So, in other words, through baptism, we are calling out to God, we're appealing to God, saying, God, please give me a good conscience. In other words, please cleanse my heart from sin. Please give me a good heart. Please, all the, I feel guilty about all the stuff that I did. Please, please fix that, Lord. Please give me a good conscience. And baptism is the way that we express that. Baptism is the way that we act out and express to God this request that he would give us a good conscience. In other words, baptism is a symbol of faith. And we got to remember that even this would have no power if it wasn't for Jesus. Even us saying, God, would you please save me? wouldn't do anything were it not for Jesus who died and rose again to make that possible. And that's why Peter ends verse 21 by saying, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Baptism now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body. It's not just going in and out of the water that does it, but rather it's the appeal as an appeal to God for a good conscience. God, please give me a good conscience. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, we got to just pause for a moment and say, where did these words, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, connect? Because these words could connect a couple of different places. Peter could be saying, well, let me just say, let me just word it this way. These words, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, could be connected to the phrase, baptism now saves you. So in other words, baptism now saves you through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So, In other words, it's not the power of the water, but it's through the resurrection of Jesus Christ that baptism has its effect. That's true. It also could be saying that we make an appeal to God for a good conscience. In other words, we're asking God to give us a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So we're saying, God, through the living Jesus I make my request that you would give me a good conscience. This is one of the cases where I think both of those ideas are true, right? Baptism has no effect apart from the resurrection of Jesus. And of course we call out to God through the resurrection of Jesus. So I'm not sure. The big idea is that all of this is connected to the resurrection of Jesus. That's what's very, very, very clear. Baptism has no power to save in and of itself. Jesus saves us through his death and his resurrection. But baptism is a crucial step 
through which we call out to God to save us. Baptism is a sign of our faith. It's a seal of our faith. It's a symbol of our faith. And because of that, just like with the wedding ring, Peter can say, baptism now saves you. So we've just looked at verse 20 to 21. And yet maybe we've raised some more questions than answers about how this all fits together. And what we're going to do now our third kind of major stop this morning is we're going to ask three questions to try to really get at what's going on here. This is important. This is, this is very important. We're talking about salvation. So we're going to ask a first question. Do we need to be baptized to be saved? Is this what Peter is telling us here? Is Peter saying, you must be baptized to be saved? And of course, we want to answer No. Like the thief on the cross, Jesus said, you're going to be with me in paradise. He never got baptized, and he was with Jesus after he died. Of course, we want to say that baptism isn't a requirement for salvation. And yet, as I say that, I want to be careful that we don't swing the pendulum the other way and make baptism sort of this like optional extra. Like, you know, you can do it if you want to. I mean, just think of this. Peter, an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ, writing inspired scripture, had no problem saying baptism now saves you. Are we okay with that? Like, think if we had a baptism service this morning and I prayed for someone afterwards and I was to say, Lord, I thank you for this baptism that now saves them. How, how bad would you freak out? How uncomfortable would you be with that? If Peter was in the room, do you think he would be uncomfortable with that? There's no doubt here. I'm not sure Peter would be uncomfortable with that. There's no doubt that Peter has a higher view of baptism than many modern Christians do. There's no doubt that Peter and the apostles took baptism way more seriously and treated it way more importantly than many of us do. Here's part of what's going on here. Baptism was God's appointed sign and seal of saving faith. And Peter assumed that if someone had saving faith, then they had been baptized. And so he had no problem saying baptism saves you as much as we'd say faith saves you. It's almost like baptism and faith, you can swap one out for the other. That's a, it's a part of what's going on here. It's a part of what's going on elsewhere in the New Testament. It's like you can just take the word baptism and you can just exchange it for faith Boom, because it's, it's, they went together so closely. So I would say that this question, do I have to get baptized to be saved, is maybe a faulty question. Because the, the way the question is asked, and of course I wrote it this way, okay, but the way the question is asked is almost like we're trying to like get around, like we're trying to find the exception, Okay, so I know we're supposed to be baptized, but uh, what, if, what, what, about, what about the exception? What about the, you know? So I think if we were to ask a question, what about people who can't be baptized? I think that's a better question. Then we can say, yeah, what about the thief on the cross? What about someone who becomes a Christian in the middle of the Sahara Desert and there's literally no water? Like, I mean, I'm sure they'd figure something out, but, but, but still, like those questions, we, okay, we want to ask. But in general... Peter's assuming 
that if someone has been saved by grace through faith, they're going to express that through baptism. That's just what you do. Because that's what Jesus told us to do. Let's ask a second question here. When should someone get baptized? And we've already sort of touched on this. We can say with it, with with a lot of certainty that in the days of Peter and the apostles, okay, in the early years after Jesus was on earth, after Jesus ascended to heaven, people didn't fo- believe in Jesus, follow him for years and years, and then get baptized. That just that just didn't happen. People didn't get baptized when they felt ready for it, as if it was a personal decision that they could choose to make on their own time. Or like, you know, you become a Christian, you've heard me say this before, and then there's like this probation period, and then once you've been a really good Christian for a few years, then you get baptized. That's just not how they thought. You believed in Jesus, and you got baptized. That's just what they did. I think we need to get this back. When is so my, my my simple answer to the question when is someone ready to get baptized when they believe in Jesus? And I wonder I think there's a few reasons why we don't necessarily feel the, the pressure to do this today because I think sometimes we we've introduced replacements for baptism. So here's what I mean. If if you're with someone and they're like I believe this I believe this. This is true. Isn't there an, an impulse to want to do something to mark the fact that they now believe? But think about the things we might encourage them to do. Okay, great. Uh, let's pray this prayer together. Or maybe write your name in the front of your Bible. Or uh, go tell someone. Or um, come to the front at, a, at the altar call, right? Or there's there's different things that that we we do and, and and because we've got this sense that there's action that must be taken something has to happen to mark that that you've passed from death to life this it's a biblical impulse but the problem is that we've we tell new christians to do some of these different things instead of telling them to do the thing that jesus told them to do which is get baptized someone says i believe great let's get baptized right well you get baptized. <laughs> Baptism is how we signify our faith in Jesus. Baptism is how we seal our commitment to him. Baptism is how we make it known that we belong to him. Just, just listen to some of these scriptures. Okay? So don't take this from me. Listen to some of these scriptures. Acts 2, 37 to 38. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent. And be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. See, there's a connection there between baptism and the forgiveness of sins. Remember, because baptism is just the way that we express our faith. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Acts 8.35-36 to Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, see, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? By the way, the answer was nothing. And they went down into the water and were baptized. 
Acts 16, 30 to 33. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, him and all his family. So when we read these these accounts, of course faith comes before baptism. Of course, you believe and then you're baptized. So again, that's why we don't baptize babies. We don't baptize people without a credible profession of faith. But faith expresses itself in baptism and fairly quickly. That's what Jesus told us, right? Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. Baptism is where a, a, a walk with Jesus of discipleship begins. It's how you tell God, it's how you tell your church that you need a clean conscience, that you're coming to Jesus for salvation, that you, that you want to follow him. And so I, I wonder sometimes, why don't we do this? Well, I wonder if, if, if we're scared of scaring people off. Like, if someone is just sitting there saying, I believe this, and you say, well, let's get baptized, that they're going to say, whoa, 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 I'm not ready for that. Well, let me suggest this. If someone is not ready to get baptized, then, then they're not actually ready to follow Jesus. Because Jesus said to get baptized. So I'm, I'm not making this up. If Jesus said get baptized then a new believer who's not ready to get baptized, they're not yet ready to to follow Jesus. And when they're ready to get baptized, then that's when they're ready to to follow Jesus. I mean, Jesus told us to pick up our crosses and and follow him. He said if we loved him, we'd obey his commandments. And so I want to suggest that the command to get baptized is probably one of the best ways of, of figuring out, is someone really in or are they still kind of flirting with Jesus and they want him on their own terms? Christians, get baptized. Plain and simple. There's no other option in the New Testament. I wonder if there's a second reason we often shy away from this is because we have this idea that baptism is better if the person decides to do it themselves. Okay? So we shouldn't put pressure on them. We shouldn't be like, well, you should get baptized now because, well, that's for them to decide. It's, it's, it's a lot better if they decide they want to do it. Okay, this is an idea. I've heard people in church talk about this. You see stuff like this on Facebook that gets lots of likes. It's, it's just this idea that we shouldn't tell people what to do because then if they do it, it's not as good. We should let them choose to do it themselves. Maybe there's a few cases where that's true. But how many pages of the Bible do we have to read before we meet a God who tells people what to do and expects that they're going to obey him? Now again, God gives us reasons for those commands. He tells us why, but then he expects us to obey. So this idea that oh, we need to wait for them to choose it for themselves, I think that's a very modern idea. And it's an idea that I have a hard time finding in the pages of Scripture. So if, if you think it's there, I mean this seriously, but I'm not saying this like, like if, if you think it's there, please show me. I just don't see it. So 
So I think of a testimony that I heard recently of someone who got baptized because someone else suggested to them that they should. And they said, you're right, I should. And then they got baptized. And I think there's lots of people who think, oh, that's maybe not as good. You maybe should have waited for them to like want it for themselves. But instead of that, I think we should see that testimony as beautiful. Because that's such a very Christian thing to do. That a brother or sister says, hey, have you seen this in God's word? And go, oh yeah, thanks for showing me that. I'm going to obey. That's just what Christians do. Time and time again, the Bible shows us the beauty of obedience, the sheer beauty of doing things because God told us to do them and we trust that he loves us and he knows best and we'll follow him even if we don't totally understand. So I do not agree that baptism is something we should never encourage someone to do. Just wait for them to choose it for themselves. I just, I just don't see that. I don't see that in the Bible. Now, connected, we're still on this question. I want to bring up the idea of children being baptized. We don't baptize babies here because a baby can't cry out to God for a good conscience. It'd be so much easier on their parents if they could, but they can't. A baby can't have faith. But what about children who are a bit older? I used to be of the opinion that we should never baptize someone until they're like 18 or something because up until that point, they just don't understand. But here's a question. Do, do any of us really understand everything at the moment of our baptism? Like did the Ethiopian eunuch that we read about or the Philippian jailer who just heard about Jesus that night, how much did he understand? And Paul was very comfortable baptizing him. So again, we need to remember, in the Bible, baptism marks the beginning of our faith journey. It's not like some midway point after we've accomplished something. Didn't Jesus also say that unless we become like little children, we'll never enter the kingdom of heaven? Matthew 18, 3. And unless you think, oh, that's, you know, that's just a symbol. No, no. In Matthew 19:14, Jesus said, "Let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven." It's passages like that that convinced me a few years ago I had to adjust my thinking on when someone was ready for baptism. Now, at the same time, I recognize that different children have different faith journeys, different levels of understanding, different maturity, and we also do not want to assume that just because someone has Christian parents that they're automatically born again and, and should be baptized just because their parents are Christians. We also want to remember, especially earlier on, children are more susceptible to suggestion and to pressure And so I would not talk to a 10-year-old about baptism the way I would talk to a 20-year-old. You see what I'm saying? We're going to have different levels of conversation. And yet, I was just reminded this week, the Jewish people, they celebrate their bar and their bat mitzvahs at 13. And for girls in, in, in Orthodox circles, 12 years of age. And that's when that youth becomes responsible before God for their own actions. We're going to talk about this a little bit next Sunday, the parenting workshop, as we talk about the teenage years. And I wonder, with our teenagers, how often we buy into our culture's beliefs in setting low expectations 
assuming immaturity for a longer period of time than is actually necessary. So parents, this calls for wisdom, but let's make sure it's the wisdom of God and not the wisdom of the world. And I'll leave it at that. Not that there's not more to say, but let's just end here. Third question. What does baptism mean after the fact? Okay, so you might think, well, this morning, okay, all this stuff about baptism, this is maybe really pertinent to someone who would say, yeah, I believe in Jesus and I want to live for him, but they haven't been baptized yet. But what does this mean for those of us who have been baptized? I mean, if you remember your baptism, I remember I was, I was 12 and, and I did choose it for myself. Uh, and uh, not that it would have been wrong if, if I, others had encouraged me to do that. And, and, and that, that night, that was a big deal for me. So it was a huge deal. And for several weeks after that, I just, you sort of live in the glow of, of, of being baptized, but I'm not living in the glow of being baptized still today. Or am I? Or am I? So th- think about it this way. If baptism marks our transfer from, from death to life, from safely brought through judgment, then that means that every time I enjoy the gospel, I'm enjoying my baptism. Every time I celebrate that I can pray to my father, he loves me. Every time I celebrate, I'm forgiven. I am living in the glow of my baptism because that's what baptism is, right? So, so thinking about like, well, what good is baptism today? That's like Noah being like, well, what good was the ark now that we're, you know, living in the new world? It's like, it's everything, Noah. It's why you're here. So looking to your baptism and looking to your salvation become really, really intertwined. And, and this might be especially true. Some of you don't know the exact moment you started to follow Jesus, but you do know when you were baptized. And that's just so important to be able to say, there's a marker there. There's a flag planted. Some of this is going to go in the study guide this week, but in Romans 6, we have the idea that, that baptism has a lot to do with our how we walk with God on an ongoing basis. In Romans 6, we can say that Paul grabs people by their baptisms and says, you've been baptized. How can you keep living like that? And that's why baptism is so important for the community of faith because it gives us a, a, a handle to, to, to say to each other, brother, sister, you've been baptized. How can you, how can you still walk as if you hadn't been so there's some good stuff in the study guide that's on the flip, flip side of your outline there in your bulletin. But as we end here, let's not forget Peter's big idea. He's writing to suffering Christians. When following Jesus gets hard, when the pressures of the world press in on us, when we're tempted to get soft and to kind of sin a little bit to make it easier on us, Christian, look to your baptism. Remember that you have died in Christ. The old you nailed to a cross. The old you breathed its last with Jesus. And that the, the new you that is alive now has been united to a resurrected, reigning Jesus. That's the whole point of verse 22, which we looked at last week, and we're going to end here through the resurrection of Jesus Christ who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers being subjected to him. Baptism has connected us. Baptism, I should say, is a sign of the faith that has connected us to the risen Christ. 
And so remember that you've been baptized into the Jesus who suffered unjustly and rose victoriously. Remember that baptism isn't just us calling out to God. Baptism is God's pledge to us that evil will not have the last word, that Jesus reigns and we will reign with him and his victory will be ours. Because in the end, brothers and sisters, baptism is not about us. It's about Jesus who is risen and whose life we share. And that's why we're ending this morning by singing a song that we often sing on Easter Sunday. This is a song about the resurrection of Jesus because this is who baptism is all about. This is what this passage is all about. This is what our lives are all about. We serve a Savior who has conquered death and the world can throw its worst at us. And for some of you, it might try this week. And when it does, remember your baptism. Remember that this is not God's judgment. You have passed safely through the judgment of God. New life is yours and new life will be yours. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this passage. Thank you for baptism. Thank you for giving us something so physical to mark our faith in you. Lord, help us to think clearly about these things. Help us to believe what your word has said. For those, Lord, who have pledged their faith to you and and have yet to follow you in baptism, would you give them a a, a strong desire to do that, that they might, might joyfully obey you. For those, Lord, who have not yet believed in you, oh God, would you just compel them with the idea, the truth of a risen, victorious Savior who has paid for all of our sins and we can know through grace. And for those of us who have been baptized, Lord, help us to live in the light of our baptism, to live in this new life that we've been connected to through faith. And Jesus, we so long for you to come again, like you promised. Please don't wait. We ask this, Jesus, in your name. Amen.